Well, it was a huge uh, crisis of faith for me. It's hard to find a metaphor that seems adequate to describe what I was feeling when I went through that first dark night of the soul. I felt like I was in quicksand. And the more I struggled, the more hopeless it felt. You see, I'd been a Christian for four years. And now at 17, I was thrust into a college scene and I just didn't have, I just didn't have the foundation to deal with the questions that were coming at me. Now, one thing you need to know about me is that uh, the last thing I want to be is gullible. You know what I mean? This may shock some of you, but I'm probably about the most skeptical and unbelieving guy you'll ever meet. Whatever I believe, I want to have a solid foundation for believing it. Whatever I give my life to, I want to have some pretty darn good reasons for doing so. So here was my dilemma. I, I couldn't just will myself to believe what I didn't. The doubts were just too strong. I mean, are people really broken and sinful? I mean, come on. Uh, if just put in the right environment, won't we really make the right choices? Are we really alienated from God like that? Aren't we basically good at heart? And I, I struggle with that because the answer to that is incredibly important. And, 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 and I struggle with this one. <clears throat> the substitutionary atonement. I mean, did Jesus really need to die so that my sins could be forgiven? Wasn't Jesus really just a nice guy who caught up, got caught up in the wheels of Roman injustice? I mean, how do I know that his death means anything more than just a good moral example that I can admire from a distance? Why should I believe it has anything to do with the forgiveness of my sins? Hasn't anybody ever read the book, I'm okay, you're okay? Wasn't God okay with us? I mean, who wants a God who needs to demonstrate wrath against sin anyway? Those were all the kind of thoughts that were racing through my mind. And, oh, my goodness, here's one. Sex being sacred? What a quaint idea. <laughs> that quaint little Victorian idea. I mean, that should have been ditched when Victoria croaked, okay? Okay. Are you serious with me? Isn't sex a mere biological function? It's just an evolutionary impulse encoded for the propagation of the species, for God's sake, if there is a God. Certainly, God, if there is one, has nothing meaningful to say about sex. And those were just a few of the thoughts that were racing through my mind. Every night, I tossed and turned, trying not to wake my roommate, Glenn, up, who was sleeping in his bed across the room. But I just couldn't sleep. These questions kept barraging my mind, and it went on for months and months and months. I just couldn't turn the doubts off. 
And I couldn't stop thinking about the implications of it. And so here's where I went. I literally tried to get myself ready for life without God. I was already there in my mind. I was trying to embrace it with my emotions. What would life be like without Christian morality to guide me? And I literally played out scenarios. What would that be? Because I, I certainly can't be a Christian with doubts like this. I certainly can't be a Christian preacher with the doubts that are in my mind. How am I gonna tell everybody? Ah, my mother, she's gonna be devastated. What about my friend group back home and the leaders in my church who encouraged me so much and nurtured me? How can I look them in the eye and tell them, I just don't believe this stuff anymore? That's what life was like for me as a college freshman, and I believe there are millions of people struggling with doubts like that today. Now, a little bit later, I'll return to my story and give you kind of the rest of the story of how God guided me through that dark tunnel of chaos. Well, last week, we kicked off this brief series called Deconstructing and reconstructing. And we define deconstruction like this. It is this critical questioning and dismantling of one's beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. You're questioning, you're dismantling, you're taking the bricks, as it were, the stones out of the building of faith that you once had. And I mentioned several people last week, people like Kevin Max of DC Talk, and I mentioned Jim Dethmer, a megachurch pastor and great seminar speaker who's now a Buddhist. I mentioned Bart Campolo, son of Tony Campolo, or Joshua Harris of I Kiss Dating Goodbye fame. And there's all these leaders who have deconstructed and said they are no longer Christians. They say they've gone through a deconversion. But as I said last week, deconstruction doesn't have to lead to deconversion. Some of the strongest, some of the most stable, healthy, solid, impressive Christians I know today have gone through deep seasons of doubt and disbelief, and they came out on the other side of it, still hanging on to their faith in Christ. And so that's what I want to talk with you about today, the hope of reconstructing. So I have two basic groups in mind that I pray God the Holy Spirit will drive these thoughts supernaturally home to your heart and soul. The first group I want to speak to is those who are trying to help others reconstruct. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town with a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell. They swung a beam and the sidewalk fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled? And the men you'd hire if you had to build, ha, he gave a laugh and said, no, indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken a year to do. And I thought to myself, as I went my way, which of these roles have I tried to play? 
Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by the rule and square? Am I shaping my deeds to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks the town content with the labor of tearing down? Which are you? Folks, I want to tell you, it's easy to deconstruct. I watched a building, massive building in Nashville one day as Debbie and I were there for a conference. And in one day's time, I couldn't believe it, that massive building was deconstructed and all there was was just rubble. It's easy to deconstruct. It may be agony for the one going through it. But the people I respect are those who are helping reconstruct. It's easy for a college professor, professor to rip apart some unsuspecting freshman and shred their faith. But what I respect are the professors and the people who help people reconstruct their faith and put some building blocks back in place. And so much of what I have to say today is for those of you who want to help, and that's many of you, you have children who are deconstructing and you don't know what to do. Parents, siblings, co-workers, friends who are saying, yeah, I'm just not sure I'm into that anymore. I'm just sure I, not sure I believe that. Well, you want to help them in any way you can. Praise God for that. I hope that today's message will help us all be better, better builders of faith. But there's a second group I also want to speak to. And that's many of you who are going right now through a dark tunnel of chaos. And it's agonizing for you. It is excruciating because you don't know what life's gonna be like on the other end of this tunnel. I'm not sure I can help. But I will say this, sometimes it may be helpful to have a word from a fellow traveler who's been there and has the scars to prove it, sometimes that may be helpful. And so if you're going through that today, if you're listening online, if you're at any of our locations, I wanna encourage you toward reconstruction if you're finding it hard to believe. So here we go. First, a word to those who want to help. This would be my challenge to us as a church and as Christian people, wherever you are. Let's make Grace Fellowship a safe and inviting place for deconstructors to bring their honest doubts and questions. I'd love to just cut a deal with you today and say, we're gonna do all we can to make Grace a place like that. Now, why? Why would we wanna be that kind of church? Let me give you a few reasons. One is because the Bible commands it. Now, if the Bible is the boss of you, then that ought to be enough. The fact that the Bible commands us to be merciful to some who are unbelieving. That's what the apostle Jude said in the little letter of Jude, verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Here's the sense of that. Look, there's always gonna be people, it's gonna be such a common experience to have people who are going through doubt. So, as believers... You need to become adept at helping people reconstruct their faith. Be merciful to them when you find people who are doubting. There's an amazing passage that always blows my mind from the book of Matthew. 
This is just before the Great Commission. Great Commission is one of the best-known passages in the Bible, Matthew 28. But just before that, we tend to just skip right through this passage. I'm reading verse 17. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Whoa, time out, time out, time out. I can't wrap my brain around it. You've got the risen, living Lord Jesus with nail prints in his hands standing before you, and you're doubting? Yep. And yet in the next three verses, Jesus launches into the Great Commission and tells them his purpose for their lives. And he did that realizing that some among them were still dealing with doubts. Jesus knew that doubts would be commonplace, but we can't let our doubts keep us from making disciples. There's a provocative passage in Mark chapter nine where Jesus is talking with a father whose son is struggling and dealing with this evil spirit. And he comes to Jesus and says, if he can help us, Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible to those who believe. And then the man cries, look, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And if we're honest, that describes a bunch of us. We've got this faith, but we've also got this mixture of unbelief. And we need help to overcome that. And so, when we talk about being merciful to doubters, let's be clear what we mean. I've come to believe through many years now, decades now, and no exaggeration, hundreds of conversations with people who are doubting, hundreds, hundreds. I've come to believe there are honest doubters and dishonest doubters, okay? Let me explain the difference. Honest and dishonest. Dishonest doubters are doubting for self-serving reasons. Someone went to W.C. Fields, the famous actor, humorist, uh, ag agnostic atheist, depending on which part of his life you were talking about. They went to him when he was literally on his deathbed, and they were shocked to see W.C. Fields reading his Bible. And they said, oh, Mr. Fields, we didn't know you believed in the Bible. He said, I don't. I'm just looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. The dishonest doubter is not doubting out of intellectual integrity. They're doubting out of moral convenience. He doesn't want to face the changes he would need to make if he altered his belief system. So his doubt and his critical questions are like a smokescreen to obscure the fact that he doesn't really want to believe the truth. What he wants is any belief system, any rationale that will justify the way he's already living. Dishonest doubters. But by contrast, oh, I love honest doubters. Honest doubters say, look, I just want the truth. I'm just on a journey here. I don't care what it means for my lifestyle. I don't care what it costs me personally. I just want to get to the truth. I admire that. 
Galileo said doubt is the father of discovery. And honest doubt is that way. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Honest doubt is an act of integrity. As Tennyson once said, there's more faith in honest doubt than half our creeds. The apostle Thomas was an honest doubter. When the other disciples seemed all excited and giddy about seeing the risen Lord, he wasn't buying that hype. No way. But one week later, when he saw the evidence in front of him, he became a committed follower. That's honest doubt in action. So the question is how? How do we have mercy on honest doubters? Well, let me mention a few things. One is you always want to listen more than you speak. Now, there is a time to speak, amen? There is a time to correct and rebuke, amen? Scripture says that. But if you find yourself talking to a doubter, and listen, you, you are talking a whole lot more than you're listening, something's wrong with that picture. Listen patiently and listen without condemning. Be humble. Be curious. Ask them how they came to their conclusions. And then, again, really, really listen. Earn the right to be heard. Listen with empathy and demonstrate that you truly care for them as a person. Too many of us are like that father whose young boy asked, Dad, how come grass is green? Dad says, I don't know. He says, uh, Dad, how come... Cows eat grass and dogs don't. Son, I don't know. Dad, how come the dog is chasing the cat? I don't know. Little boy says, Dad, hope you don't mind me asking you all these questions. Dad says, no, son. If you don't ask questions, how are you going to learn? <laughs> well, hopefully we're more helpful than that dad was. But we don't have to be a brain on a stick and have all the answers. You do need to listen. Because honest doubt is often a prelude to robust faith. So let me declare it. God is not threatened by all this. God is not threatened by critical questions and doubts. He can handle himself. But let's be merciful to those with honest doubts. The Bible actually commands it. Second, let's make grace a safe place for honest doubters because most people in the dark tunnel of doubt didn't make a conscious choice to be there. I hope you're hearing that. I didn't want to be there. I hated both of those seasons of doubt and deconstruction I went through, both in college and six years later. It was excruciating for me. And I believe that most people who are in that dark tunnel of chaos didn't go looking for doubts. The doubts found them. What really happened is, they saw another report about a Christian behaving badly and this doubt entered their mind. If this is really credible, how come so many Christians are so deeply flawed? Or they read another article online by some eminent professor who was giving his spin on why this Christian doctrine is not true and they didn't have answers for it because they'd never been trained. And so they begin to spin out of control into doubt. Or here's a real one. 
they're disappointed in God because they were dating this person and it was the person they thought was the one. And the one just said, let's date other people. And their heart is broken and their faith is shattered and they think, God doesn't answer my prayers. Does God really care about me at all? You see, they didn't make a conscious choice to start doubting. It just feels like something they can't escape. And I think that's the way it is for most honest doubters. So let's be merciful. Let's go to people who have some belief but are struggling and go, let, let, let me help you here. I want to at least be a sounding board. Let me just be a listening ear as you struggle through this. Third, we want to be a safe and inviting place where people can bring their honest doubts because for many people, now I want us to leave this one up here a long time because some of us longtime Christians really, really need to look at this statement. Oh, it was hard for me to embrace, let me tell you. I almost couldn't bring myself to put this up here today. That's how much I love truth itself, pure and unadulterated. But read this statement. For many people, compassion and mercy is a more compelling witness for Christ than the truth itself. I gotta admit, it's taken me years to embrace this. You see, I'm a person who's driven by truth. I love the truth. To me, that's the thing that matters the most. I could hardly care less about the package the truth is delivered in. I don't care if the person delivering the truth is utterly obnoxious. The truth is the truth, and that's what I care about. That's why it's been so hard for me. That's why I've been so dense and dull. Because it's not that way for most people. I hope you understand that. All you teachers out there, all you Bible study leaders, all you small group facilitators, all of you ministry leaders, you gotta get this in your brain. For most people, listen to the communication experts. They'll tell you that the way the message is delivered is huge for the average person. The content is just one tiny little part of it. They want a compassionate deliverer of the truth. And that's why the tone of your voice is important as you share with them. What is your body language? As they're giving you their questions, are you rolling your eyes in disgust? Ah, I can't believe you would even think of that. You just lost them. You just completely drove them away when you did that. You see, the vibe you're giving off sets the stage for the truth to be received. And people are generally gonna be drawn to whoever they feel is really demonstrating authentic love to them. Let me tell you something I know about people. They want a place to belong and feel loved. And listen, church, I won't hammer you all day on this, but if we demand that people become orthodox believers before we want to have anything to do with them, we're not going to have many people come into faith in Christ. I'll tell you that right now. Because to the average person, compassion and mercy and kindness is just as important as the truth itself. There's an old saying, I'll bet you've heard it a million times. 
I used to roll my eyes at this. I honestly did the first time I heard it. I'll bet you can complete it. See if you can complete it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? So when people have doubts, don't blame them. Don't shame them. Aim them. Don't you love that cute little, I almost made that my outline today. Just When they have doubts, don't blame them. Don't shame them. Aim them toward the truth and let the Holy Spirit do his work, okay? Yeah, it's a, it's a good plan, honestly. And I'm glad I didn't make it my outline. Uh, it, it's too cutesy, but I, it works for me anyway. Jesus said, but a new command I give you, love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, secondly, let's turn a corner here. And I wanna speak now to those who are actually in the tunnel of deconstruction. And that is many of you. I'm gonna give you a suggestion here. Don't throw rotten eggs at me quite yet. But here's my suggestion. Hold on to your orthodox Christian beliefs until you have something that is clearly proven to be better. I know that sounds bizarre. I know to some of you that actually sounds ridiculous. I get it. But why would I make such a suggestion? I'm gonna give you three reasons now, and I pray you have ears to hear. Number one, because you may be reacting against a distorted version of Christianity rather than Christianity itself. Now, last week in our message, we talked about the fact that we need to do some deconstruction because there are all kinds of cultural accretions that have been added to Christianity. I'm a lover of Christian history. I really, I just read books. Books and books. I love to study what God has done through the church, in the church, all around the church for the last 2,000 years. Can I tell you, can I tell you a line that I think could be written over God's people for the last 2,000 years? Here's what, here's what I've concluded. Christians have trouble keeping the main thing the main thing. That's what I get out of reading church history. We just do. We make it about our pet issues. We make it about gender or politics or prosperity or legalism. We find this secondary issue that we're really passionate about. And we know it's not at the core of Christianity, but we're so stoked about it. We make it all about that and we forget that not every true Christian needs to believe exactly the same way about that. But we pound it and pound it. And we forget that real Christians can relate to their culture in different stylistic ways. The Amish retreat from culture. Some of us want to live a mile from the gate of hell, okay? We relate to culture in different ways, but we still are orthodox believers. I suggest that you hang on to whatever Christian faith you may have because your problem may be not so much with Christ as it is with Christians, now, I asked myself the question this week, what is the difference between my two big seasons of deconstruction and most of the deconstructors that I've talked with in the last five years? And the answer came pretty quickly. It was fairly easy to, to pinpoint. My areas of deconstruction, my times of deconstruction mostly had to do with things kind of on the bottom of this structure. I was dealing with 
content issues. I was dealing with theology. What is the substance of Christianity? That's what I was dealing with, okay? You know what most of the people that I, and I've talked to a lot of younger millennial types that are ready just to ditch the Christian faith. I'm talking about young people who've grown up in church, gone to Christian schools. They're like, I'm out of here. I want nothing to do. Their issues have nothing to do with this mostly. They mostly have to do with Christians behaving badly. And most of the younger people that I know today are looking at evangelical Christians and going, if that's what you're asking me to be, no thanks. I need something that looks a little bit more like Jesus than that. So if you're in the dungeon of doubt today, make sure that your beef is actually with Christ and not with just some of his most unimpressive followers, okay? Just saying. So don't be so quick to chuck it all until you've really asked yourself that question. Second, I would suggest you hold on to whatever faith you have because it takes time to examine the evidence and consider its merits. Both of my seasons were really long. My first season in college went all the way from the beginning of my freshman year way on into my sophomore year and almost to the end of it. As I said, deconstruction can be fast. You can knock down a building really quickly, but reconstruction takes time. All I'm saying is you may end up with egg on your face if the first doubt you have, you go on social media and go, I'm not a believer anymore. Well, hang on. That takes time to really navigate through that tunnel of darkness. So, if you really have questions about the validity of Christianity, be honest enough in your doubts to investigate the evidence on your own. When John questioned Jesus, you remember that we looked at this last week, Jesus replied to him in Matthew 11, verse four, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus was urging John to investigate the evidence personally because we learn best what we have to discover on our own. And I don't know for sure how it worked, but I imagine that when those disciples went back and reported to John in prison what Jesus had said, I imagine they sat there and pondered it. And I imagine he knew the Old Testament so well he probably thought about Ezekiel 37, and he probably thought about Isaiah 61, and he probably thought about Isaiah 29, all these messianic prophecies. He probably said, you know what? His heart began to pound a little faster. His adrenaline surged. You know what? I get it now. Jesus really is the Messiah. He's just come in a different way than I anticipated that he would. So if you're in that tunnel today, I encourage you to examine the evidence carefully before coming to any hard conclusions because the process requires some time. And here's my final suggestion. If you're having trouble believing, if you're kind of where I was and so many others have been and you're in the dark tunnel, this is gonna bend your mind now. Get ready. Confident faith 
often comes as a result of first doing God's will. That's the opposite of what we typically think. Jesus made one of the most provocative statements he ever made as recorded in John 7, verse 17. He said, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. We think it's just the opposite. Jesus is saying there that the Christian life has a sort of self-authenticating quality about it. There's a sense in which you belong before you believe. There's a sense in which you participate doing God's will before you're ever ready to profess faith in Christ. Mark Twain made a statement that's one of my favorites. He's reported to have said, He's so quotable, it's great. He who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. (laughs) He who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Oh, that's so good. Even if I explain to you brilliantly what it's like to carry a cat by the tail, it will never be the same as you learning by doing it. The Christian faith is the same way. You've got to plunge in. You gotta pick that cat up. That brings me back to my story. I didn't think I'd make it out of the dark tunnel of doubt still holding on to faith. I just didn't believe I would. But I decided to make this fundamental choice. I'm not gonna just totally let go of all I've believed I'm not gonna abandon my Christian beliefs until I have something that is clearly proven to be better. I just kind of said that to myself. And so I began to spend hours, sometimes whole days in the library studying the major religions of the world. I talked to professors. I asked them what they believed and, and why. I talked to local leaders, Christian leaders in the area. I had conversations with fellow students. For the first time in my life, I began to read books on apologetics like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which had just come out in June of 79. And I began to read Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and I began to wonder, if, if these doubts I'm having are valid, why are so many brilliant scientists and philosophers faithful followers of Jesus? And if these doubts I have are really valid, who's changing lives for the better? Some two billion people claiming Jesus has changed their lives. And if my doubts are really valid, who could take a heartless persecutor of Christians like Saul of Tarsus and turn him into a compassionate lover of people who is willing to die for his beliefs? And if my doubts are valid, How could the brilliant atheistic philosopher of Renaissance literature who taught at Oxford and Cambridge, how could he become a passionate follower of Jesus? Doesn't he know better? This man's brilliant. He certainly had no desire to believe. I mean, I read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He put it like this. He said, I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. It was not convenient for my career. It was not convenient for my social life. But he said to consider the greatest influence for good that the world has ever known could have lived a colossal lie was not a rational position to hold. 
And as I plunged in, as I plunged in and grabbed the cat by the tail, I did my own searching. And God graciously brought me from deep doubt to a confident belief. And this will blow your mind. But while I was still in the tunnel of chaos, still not knowing if I was really a Christian believer or not, I went on a mission trip. I I wasn't trying to be deceitful, but I I was in this fog of doubt, and I had belief, but I wasn't sure because I had so much unbelief. And I served the poor and the underserved people of New Orleans in my first mission trip ever as a sophomore in college. And as I witnessed to a faith that I wasn't even sure I really believed at the time, as I sought God in prayer and asked, God, if you're really there, please make yourself known to me. Eventually, brick by brick by brick, my faith was reconstructed. And I pray that God will do that same thing for you by the Holy Spirit. Etched on the wall of a Nazi prison camp after World War II were found these words scrawled on the wall. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when I don't feel it. And I believe in God, even when he's silent. Father, would you help us, those who are trying to be reconstructors and help others, and those who right now, in all honesty, are just in the pit of despair and don't know if they're going to come out on the other side of this tunnel of chaos. They don't know if they're going to get out of this pit still hanging on to faith. By your Spirit, would you graciously guide them through? Father, I ask that as they kind of take, plunge in and take the cat by the tail, as they just begin to do God's will, I pray that you would do what you said you would do, that they would find out that your teaching is indeed true and that you're who you said you are and that this is real and it's true. And Father, I pray it would all happen for your honor, your glory, and your credit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.